0: Good morning and happy Easter. Our scripture reading from today concludes our John series in John chapter 21. And if you're new to reading the Bible, John can be found at the beginning of the New Testament, the second half of the Bible. And the words we read this morning are not mere human words. They are words from God is spoken, um, authored, ordained by the Holy Spirit through John and so the words we hear today are powerful, are authoritative, and are meant to change our lives. So listen as we read John chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. Then they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for reading, Lauren and William. Appreciate it. Really good to see you. And if you're visiting with us this morning, we're very glad to have you with our family. I would like to personally invite you to stay well after the Our worship gathering concludes. Actually, in between the two gatherings, we're going to have coffee and cinnamon rolls catered by um, Brown Roll. Right outside, please stay and enjoy a little brunch with us. And then come back. Come back after the second worship gathering, which ends right about 1230. And you can already see it. Actually, they pulled in while we were singing uh, Blue Cafe. They're friends of ours right down the street here on Gate 2 Street. And uh, they actually just opened a new uh, side hustle by Camp Hansen, a different variety of food. I don't know if that second truck's coming, or they're just also serving that along with the jerk chicken, but they're going to serve both varieties today. Uh, the meal is on us, and so we would like to invite you to join us uh, as our guests and share in a good meal. Uh, we, would, we would very much enjoy the opportunity to get to know you further. So please come back at 1230 and join us for lunch. Um, you didn't want that ham anyway. Like you only made it cause it's Easter. Like just <laughs> honestly, how many times do you bake an entire ham all year? Just give it to a neighbor or something. Come back and, and eat with us. Okay. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We want to pause now, uh, to acknowledge again that we are your kids. And as kids, something we forget on the regular, we are dependent. We are not autonomous. We are not independent, even though on every day, all of our impulses lead us to live like we are autonomous and independent and on our own and masters of our own destinies and lives we are not. And so we just as a family want to repent of those tendencies and once again place ourselves before you as our dad and pray Jesus as you taught us to pray, Father in heaven, Your name is worthy, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done, not ours, not mine. We pray that you would give us this morning the bread, the nourishment that our souls need. We walk in here, whether we know it or not, famished and in need of sustainment from you. So I pray that you would give that nourishment to every soul that is present this morning. Father, we pray that you would lead us to forgive those who have trespassed against us this week in the same way that you have so generously forgiven us. Father, we ask for your forgiveness for withholding mercy when you have given us so much. Father, we pray that you would lead us away from temptation and deliver us from evil. You know how, as your kids, we are so quick to run away from you and run to so many different temptations. And Father, remind us this morning in your kindness that it's your kingdom and your power and your glory so that we will be rescued from the temptation to build our own little kingdoms and to be jealous of other people's kingdoms and to be competing with other people, comparing. Remind us that it's your glory so that we are rescued from trying to live for our own fame but that we would rather live gladly for your fame and the good of other people. And Father, the beautiful truth that it's your power, not ours, so that we can be rescued from the American ideal of projecting our own power and showing ourselves to be strong and great, that we would repent of that and rest in the beautiful reality that we live, not by our might, not by our power, but by yours. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, fam. Last day in John John 21. I shed a few tears this week, not going to lie. I have loved journeying through this book with you. So here we are in John chapter 21 and and uh, last week in John 20 I mentioned to you that really the last two chapters of this gospel account form something of its own two-part series. So we could have could have a mini series within a in a series. And we last week entitled this mini-series, Resurrection Reversals, because at its core, the resurrection is about reversal. Fundamentally, death to life, darkness to light, injustice to justice, guilt to innocent, rejection to reconciliation, shame to sonship, despair to hope. The resurrection is all about reversal. So last week, part one, John chapter 20, it was entitled Eight Days Later And this morning, part two, John chapter 21, charcoal fire. I'll show you why in just a minute. Last week, what we learned is this, and this is good news for every one of us. The resurrected Jesus is present and patient in our unbelief. Because there's a misnomer out there in our culture that Christians are those people who no longer have any unbelief. They're just full of belief. No, Christians should be first in line acknowledging unbelief, confessing that unbelief, and asking for the grace. We see this in the Gospels. You remember that one prayer? Jesus, I believe, please help my unbelief. Okay? So guys, let's just be humble. Let's stand in the front of the line and let's actually confess the unbelief that still resides in our hearts. And rather than being threatened by that, as most of you have been for your religious experiences throughout life, the Gospel actually calls you to rest in your remaining unbelief, knowing that Jesus is kind And he is present and he is patient in your unbelief. That's good news. That's what we saw in John chapter 20 last week. Now John 21, here's the big idea for our time this morning. Charcoal fire, the source of my guilt, becomes a symbol of his grace. That is the greatest reversal in the resurrection narrative. What should be the source of my guilt is transformed by the resurrection of Jesus to become a beautiful symbol of his grace in my life. Some of you guys like outlines and taking notes. Uh, So for those of you who like to break the chapter down, here are the three kind of hinge points, if you will, or how I see the chapter breaking down and how we'll guide our conversation through the narrative this morning. From verses 1 to 8, I titled that 120 Second Thoughts. I guess it depends where you want to put the comma in that. Um, It could be 120 seconds or 120 second thoughts, or the way I think it goes, 120 second thoughts, okay, 120 second thoughts. 9 to 14, Peter's going to eat a side of guilt for breakfast, or maybe a, a big helping of guilt with a side of shame, guilt for breakfast. And then 15 to 19, where guilt meets grace, okay? So let's begin Verse 1 of chapter 21 says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That was the Roman name for the Sea of Galilee. So they're they're back and they've been here a million times throughout the Gospels. And what does it say? It says, Jesus revealed himself in this way. Uh, Notice just the opening line, though. After this, Jesus revealed himself what? Again. Maybe that's all you need this morning, and maybe we stop the sermon right there, but if you're into underlining or circling, I would encourage you to circle, underline, highlight, tattoo, just go right upstairs afterwards, (laughs) the word again. Guys, human history is defined by God's mercy in his purposeful act to reveal himself to you again and again and again, and again, because it was not enough for Jesus to reveal himself to you one time. Your heart needs him to reveal himself over and over and over again. So he had already revealed himself to his disciples at least three times, we know from John, but they needed to see Jesus again. And you need to see Jesus again. And like we said last week, you don't need another explanation from me about the resurrection. You don't need a lesson. You don't need a book. You don't even need this 30-minute sermon. You need the resurrected Jesus to reveal himself to you personally, not to me so that I can explain it to you or explain my own encounter with the resurrected Jesus to you. You need a personal experience with the resurrected Christ. So I already prayed once, but I'm going to stop and pray again because every one of us needs this this morning. Whether you have seen Jesus clearly 100 times, 10 times, or never, my prayer for every one of us in this room is that today will be defined by a personal revelation from Jesus for your good and for your flourishing. So I'm going to ask for that. Father, I need Jesus to reveal himself to me again. Jesus, I need to see you. It's like I have 20-20 vision one day, and then my eyes are shrouded the next. It's like my heart can be glad and rejoice one day, but then in the valley of the shadow of death, it goes dark. And I know everybody in here uh, leans that way, and some in this room, Jesus, have yet to encounter you as their resurrected and rescuing king. So Father, please give us this gift by your kindness. Jesus, please reveal yourself To us again this morning, we pray, Amen. All right, verse four. Check this out. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Remember, if you were here last week, remember how John framed up chapter twenty. It started out in verse one, early in the morning, and then what? While it was still dark. So notice the contrast between between chapter twenty and chapter twenty-one. It was still dark. Because the morning was being framed up as though, like Jesus' followers were still under the impression that Jesus was dead and in the grave. Still dark. An existence without Jesus, fam, is a dark and hopeless existence. But now, John frames up chapter 21, Jesus standing on the shore as the day is breaking. The resurrection is the daybreak of human history. It is the singular mark that demonstrates that night will fade and the sun will rise and day will break. Injustice will be replaced with justice. Despair will be replaced with hope. And most importantly, perhaps for you this morning, your guilt will be replaced by grace. The resurrection stands as the daybreak of human history. So it's daybreak. The boys are out fishing on the Sea of Tiberias or the Lake of Galilee. Seven of them are there. We read the names already. But honestly, six of them can fade away because the morning is about Peter. Jesus is showing up for Peter's good. So Peter's here. They've been. Now, how many of you have a life verse? No? That was a 1980s and 90s thing? All right, well, if you're still looking, some of you, here's your life verse, some of you. Verse three, did you see it? I don't know if it's gonna be on the screen, but it says, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. (laughs) Now, for those of you that make that your life verse, let me show you what your life verse actually is. I guess it's still chapter, verse three, it's just the end of it. They went out and got into the boat, but that night, they caught nothing. That's actually your (laughs) life verse. You just dreamed that you belong on ESPN in these fishing tournaments, but you're not, are you, right? You're right here. So there's your life verse. So the seven disciples, seven of them are out fishing. They catch nothing. A man shows up on the shore and he says, hey guys, uh, notice he, he refers to them as children. That was just a figure. That, was, that would be like us rolling up on the shore and be like, hey fellas, hey boys, hey boys, uh, hey boys, throw your net over on the other side of the boat. Long night of sleep, or long night, sleepless night, no fish, like, why not? Well, he's crazy, crazy guy on the shore, but why not? So they throw the net over, and the net is just immediately filled with fish. And in that moment, John, uh, who refers to himself regularly in this gospel as the one whom Jesus loved, right, he says, hey guys, that's not a crazy guy on the shore, like, that's Jesus. That's, that's definitely something Jesus would do. That's Jesus on the shore. And notice Peter does the most Peter thing. What does he do? He jumps out of the boat and into the water, and he swims to shore. Everybody else stays on the boat. And we see this in verse 8. It says, the other well, verse 7, um, That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Peter heard that it was the Lord, He put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. Remember that phrase. Some of you need to throw yourself into the sea. He threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. So Peter throws himself into the sea. He's a hundred meters from shore and he swims. Everybody else comes in the boat. And this is why I entitled verses 1 to 8, 120 Second Thoughts. Because this is the most Peter moment ever. And I guarantee as soon as... Look, the fact that Peter threw himself into the sea to swim demonstrates he wasn't willing to wait the amount of time it would take for the boat to get there. He needed to be in Jesus' presence right now. His soul needed something, which, if you recall, for those of you familiar with the the gospel narrative, you know why. You know it was just a few nights ago where over a, a campfire, Peter denied any connection to Jesus. All the while it was just a night before where he said Jesus I love you more than anybody else so much so I would die for you. And then 24 hours later, less than 24 hours later, Jesus who? Right? His soul he needs he needs a good a good heartfelt experience with Jesus. So 122nd thoughts. Did you know the world record for the 100 meter swim is 46.91 seconds? Did you know that? 47 seconds. The rest of us swim 100 meters in about two minutes, 120 seconds. Sometimes we read these narratives and we're like, oh, Peter jumped in the water and then he was on the shore. Nope. Peter jumped into the water and then swam for 120 seconds to shore. That means Peter had 120 second thoughts. What... What am I doing? I do this all the time. I rush in without thinking it through. I probably look like a complete fool to everybody else on the boat. I look desperate. Um, I look desperate to the people. What am I? What am I doing? I'm a grown man, and here I am swimming in the water. And so you might wonder, man. I wonder what Peter was thinking for 120 seconds while he was swimming to shore to see Jesus. I don't think we have to wonder. I think we can put pieces together, and here's where I would go if, I know it's assuming something, but I feel like when I see Peter, and I ask him about this moment, I feel like this is what he would say. Remember John 18, this will be on the screen for you. I think this is what was filling Peter's mind. This is the night of the crucifixion. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The charcoal fire came to be the defining symbol of Peter's denial. So there's a lot to remember there. It has a particular smell. It has a particular sound, the crackling. I think Peter's remembering his moment around the fire, denying his relationship with Jesus, not just to grown men, but to a young young girl. And then we have this description from Luke, where Luke records it powerfully this way. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. I have no idea who Jesus is. I have no idea what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. I think for 120 seconds, the rooster's crow was replaying in Peter's mind. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. I think for 120 seconds, Peter's remembering that first eye contact from Jesus. We've all been in moments like that where in an intimate moment, your eyes connect with a person with whom you have hurt or wounded, whose trust you have betrayed, you have shocked them in some kind of way, you've, you've violated something relationally. There's a powerful moment. He's remembering this eyesight. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how He had said to him, "Before the rooster crows, today you will deny me three times." I think with every stroke that Peter took, those words went through his head. "You're a denier. You deny you will deny me three times." And look at these words. Peter went out and wept bitterly. Tears flowed down his cheeks. I think for 120 seconds, though he was swimming, Peter was drowning in a sea of his own thoughts filled with despair and guilt and shame. 120 seconds of second thoughts. I wonder how many of you this morning feel like you have a 120 seconds' worth of second thoughts standing between you and Jesus, who awaits you on the shore. Now, look at verse 15, or I'm sorry, look at verse 9. When they got out on land, what do they see? A charcoal fire. Can you imagine that moment if you're Peter? You have just been swimming for two minutes. What's been going through your mind? But this scene, and we already know Peter wasn't in good cardio shape, right? Because Last week in chapter 20, he and John have a foot race to the tomb, and John... Big time beats him out, right? So Peter shows up hunched over, he, he runs once a year for his physical fitness test and then he doesn't, that's Peter, okay? So we know he's not in good shape. Guys, if you're not in good shape, go swim 100 meters. You don't jump out of the water and just start spryly walking. He's probably crawling out of the pool, hands and knees, his head is no good form, so he lifts his head and what? Greets him on the shore the very image that dominated his imagination on the way there, the very smell, the very crackling. And if I'm Peter, I'm getting out of the water saying, are you kidding me right now? See, I deserve to feel this way. I should be drowning in a sea of my own guilt. There he is. There's Jesus. Is this some kind of cruel joke? Like he called us to shore, he gives us these fish, and he lights a charcoal fire to remind me of how I failed him. And look, it's between me and him. There's Jesus, there's the charcoal fire, and I am on the other side. Is this how it's going to end? Are we here so that Jesus can say, the rest of you are still in, but Peter's out, and don't ever forget, it's because of those minutes around the charcoal fire. I don't think I'm making this up because uh, look at what happens. We already know, is Peter an introvert or an extrovert? Straight extrovert, okay? Immediately acting, leaning into people. Now watch how he acts right here. He gets out of land. They see a charcoal fire, fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus says to them, hey, fellas, bring me some of the fish that you have just caught. Verse 11, who goes back on the boat? Just Peter. Peter. Just Peter. That's what an introvert does. How many times have you done that? You find yourself in the awkward moment or conversation that you've had nightmares about. You find the first opportunity, awkward or not, to excuse yourself from the moment. Oh, fish on the boat. I got it. I got it. You guys stay here. I'm out, right? This is not who Peter is. He goes on the boat. Peter goes on board. Now imagine Peter's thought on the boat. I got to believe Peter gets back on the boat with the fish and looks back out towards the sea. I wonder if he thought about jumping back in and swimming the other direction. Well, it's over anyway. Look at this. Jesus met me with a symbol of my guilt. I'm gone. I'm gone anyway. But he gets the fish. He brings them up on shore. Notice the detail. Um, John must have been about his fishing life. There's 153 of them. 153. That's a lot of fish. Jesus says to them, hey, come and have breakfast. And so they all gather around, and Peter has guilt for breakfast and a side of shame. The conversation doesn't move forward around breakfast. They're just sitting around the fire, a charcoal fire, the same smells associated with Peter's denial, the same crackling associated with Peter's rejection of Jesus, Everything. And breakfast just happens. This is the most awkward meal that Peter's ever had. Some of you have had awkward meals like this. And it's like the moment just never ends. And you would like for it to be over. Imagine Peter's heart in this moment. Some of you don't have to imagine because you had guilt for breakfast this morning. And your only association with Jesus from your religious experiences is that Jesus exists on the shore to stand next to your charcoal fire to remind you of all the ways that you are a rebel deserving of guilt and shame, and guilt and shame are your motivators to be different, live different, do different. And if that guilt and shame can just motivate you, somehow you'll be okay with God, but the guilt and the shame is destroying you. You eat guilt for breakfast every single morning. But here's the moment where Peter's guilt collides with Jesus' grace. Verse 15 When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, people like to argue, what Jesus was asking here, more than what? What, is, what? Do you love me more than what? Some people, some people are all about, um, they think Jesus was pointing to all the fishing gear, right? Like Peter's got his Salt Life t-shirt on. And, and Jesus is like, hey, Peter, you're back fishing again already. I thought I called you away from this to go be fishers of men. Do you love me more than all of these? Your fishing poles, your boat, your nets, right? Um, maybe. I don't think that's what Jesus is asking. Some people think Jesus is asking Peter, Peter, do you love me than all of the, more than you love all these guys right here, all the boys? I don't think that's what Jesus is, is asking either, if Peter loves Jesus more than he does other people. I think the third option is best where Jesus is actually asking Peter, Peter, do you love me more than the rest of these guys love me? It doesn't sound like a healthy kind of gospely thing to ask, but I think the reason Jesus is asking this is what did Peter declare so boldly a couple nights ago? I love you more than anybody else. These guys are going to run, and I will die for you. And then Peter failed miserably. Not only did he not have that kind of love for Jesus, he actually denied Jesus. And so now Jesus takes Peter to the moment of his rejection, his rebellion, and he asks, Simon, do you really love me more than these guys? Because that's what you said, but that's not what your life demonstrated. How many of us could receive that question from Jesus right now? Like, hey, yo, last week you were in church and like you sang all these songs, like you love me, and you raised your hands, you had a little tear. You had a journal entry on Monday. Do you really love me more than these? John said to him, or Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know, you know that I love you. You know it. And Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. I'll say something about that in a minute. Verse 16, again, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you really love me? And Peter A second time says, uh, yes, Jesus, you know that I love you. And again, Jesus said to him, okay, tend my sheep. In verse 17, Jesus said to Peter a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And in this moment, in the third asking of the question, notice Peter's emotion. Peter was grieved because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? Imagine the moment. Peter knows he denied Jesus three times. And on the third question, he just breaks down crying. He's grieved, weeping bitterly, just like Luke told us he did on the night of his rejection. But Jesus is not here to grind Peter into the ground with guilt or to bury him in shame. Jesus says to him again, feed my sheep. So he said that three times now. This is Jesus' way of very slowly looking Peter in the eye and affirming to him, you are still mine and you are still in the family and I am still going to entrust to you the same re- responsibilities that I, have, I had entrusted to you before. You let go of me, you denied me, I will never let go of you and I will never deny you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Kind of a cryptic saying, right? Good thing we have verse 19 that says, this Jesus said to show Peter what kind of death he was to glorify God. In other words, uh, that was something of a figure of speech to let Peter and the other disciples know that Peter would die in the same way that Jesus had with outstretched hands uh, via crucifixion, the most shameful way to die. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now guys, Jesus had already invited Peter to follow him before. But this, in this moment, when Jesus said to Peter, follow me, this was the kindest, most gentle, most grace-filled moment where in spite of Peter's rejection and denial, Jesus reaffirms Peter as his own, and he, he reminds him, "Peter, though your commitment is weak towards me, my commitment is strong towards you, and though you have denied me, I will never deny you, and though you let go of me, I will never let go of you. You are still in my family. Let's go. Follow me. this is the moment where the sight of Peter's rejection became a symbol of his restoration. This is the moment where Peter's guilt collided with Jesus' grace. This is the moment where Peter's shame, the symbol of his shame, became actually a symbol of his sonship. This was the moment where all that made Peter feel gross became a beautiful moment of Jesus' grace. Follow me. Peter would not have ever heard those words from the boat. The problem is for some of us this morning, guys, your soul is still 100 meters offshore where the resurrected Jesus stands next to your charcoal fire, where you are afraid he will meet you and destroy you with guilt, but where Jesus has every intention of turning the symbol of your guilt into a sign of his grace. And we already read that Peter threw himself into the sea. And there, though there is no water between you and Jesus, there is likely a gulf between your soul and the resurrected Christ. And it is for you this morning, like Peter, to throw your soul into the sea and cover the 120 seconds between you and the resurrected Christ. So let me ask you this morning, it's very clear what Peter's charcoal fire is. I think it would benefit us to spend a few moments considering what's yours and what's mine. What is the smell of your charcoal fire that is associated with your rebellion away from Jesus? What is the sight of your grossest rejection? Where, though you have confessed Jesus before, your life has demonstrated now Jesus is not my king, I am. Where have you followed the sweet and seductive voice of temptation only to be burned by the fire? of that rebellion, and then have the smoke linger in your nostrils, a nauseating sense after moments of exhilaration that you thought were the most life-giving, as the pleasure faded, you were left with disgust, despair, shame, guilt, and a nauseating sense from the lingering smoke of your charcoal fire. What's the street address of your charcoal fire? I wonder what's the web address of your charcoal fire. I wonder what the dollar amount is of your charcoal fire. I wonder what the secret is that is your fire. You know, when I was a kid, there was a bear. What was his name? Yeah, yeah, Yogi and Boo Boo, like, yeah, we just watched that movie, actually. No, the other one, you only, you can prevent forest fires. Smoky. Guys, you know what the gospel says? Not only can you not prevent forest fires, the gospel says your life is full. You got a forest fire full of charcoal fires in your soul. And the thing is, while we're having this conversation right now, we're not even talking hardcore past tense. We're talking the embers of some of your charcoal fires are not only still burning, they are giving off a ton of smoke. The thing is, it's invisible to the rest of us in this room, even while it's choking out your soul right now. So the bottom line is, we all have a fire, and it all stands as the source of our guilt. The invitation that Jesus gives to you this morning is to throw yourself into the sea, To swim yourself to shore and to meet him at that place where the symbol of your guilt will become a symbol of his grace. Where the symbol of what makes you feel disgusting will actually be turned into a symbol that proves deeply loved daughter. The symbol that just fills your heart with shame becomes a symbol that says deeply loved son. The site where Jesus will meet you and where your guilt will become grace. So I'm going to stop talking right now. And just kind of as a head nod to Peter's personal experience, uh, Darren's going to come and lead us in response. But I I asked him earlier, I said, Darren, I want 120 seconds to tick by. I want 120 silent seconds because I want you, like Peter, and me, like Peter, to throw ourselves into the sea and relive the horror the, the bitter weeping, the sorrow, the guilt, the shame of our charcoal fire. So that when we meet the resurrected Christ on the shore, we can encounter him and have the horror of that guilt be turned into the beauty of his grace. So let's do that.